tell? Is it is it that I'm getting sneakier? <laughs> I wish I had a clean mind. I'll tell you. <laughs> no, I I think it would be terrible. Would, would, would you? Uh, just just think how it would be if you did. Have you ever met anybody who's a human compost heap? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Bring it up there, Matthew. We are about to salute a lost and gone hero on the American scene. So we'll get ready out there. Everybody, sit down. Pull in your gut. I want you to play it cool and honest. Remember what happened to Pinocchio. You don't want it to happen to you. All right, Matt, sneak it in. Now, this was written about 1897, and it's called The Night Operator. In this little lamp-lit office through the gloomy hours of night sits the lone night operator from the eve till morning light. Watching close with sharpened hearing what the sleepless sounders say, talking with their wakeful neighbors in the stations far away. Converse with his far-off neighbors drives the dull night hours along while his duties and his orders all the while his memory throng. Though his eyelids droop at midnight, fain to close themselves in sleep. No, not for his the bliss of slumber. He must still his vigil keep. All the while, the sleepless sounder tells its tale of joy or woe. Now it tells of birth or marriage. And now hearts with rapture glow. Now it tells of fatal sickness. Now it speaks with wailing breath while it tells in mournful accents of some dear friend's sudden death. Now I see a scowl of anger cloud the operator's brow, hear him breaking and ascending. Wonder what's the matter now? To some plug that is receiving. Hear him break and say G-A four or five times in one message ere he deigns to sound okay. Now his office call is sounded. How the glistening sounder clicks and he catches quick the order. Flag and hold train number six. Quickly comes another order for a freight train overdue, and the sounder clicks it fiercely. Hurry up, the 32. Now he's fighting for the circuit with some fellow working west. One can never break the other. Each one does his level best. Quickly speaks the train dispatcher. How his sharp words ringing come. Stop, I tell you. Stop this breaking, or I'll, I'll send you rascals home. Stop. Little knows the man or woman swiftly speeding over the rail. How the safety or the danger rests on one who dares not fail. Rests on the night operator seated in his lonely room. One mistaking of an order sends the train to fearful doom. So kindly greet the operator. He is human. Nothing else. Let some kind word gently spoken serve his tired heart to bless. Oft he tires, answering questions. And his face looks hard as stone, but the heart within his bosom beats. 
as kindly as your own. The night operator. Hold it there, old Matt. You know what that you know what they're referring to? You know what a night operator is? You know what a sounder is he's talking about. That's that's code, yeah. And uh, he's the guy on the on the uh you know, the night operator. And uh, that there is a hero. That I mean that's a that's a law. Do you know that around the time of the around roughly the turn of the century, uh the one of the most uh, important guys in any town was the telegraph operator. In fact, earlier than the turn of the century, just after the Civil War. Because he connected all, in other words, he was the contact from one town to the next. And all this wild stuff would come through his wire. He knew everything that was going on in town. And uh, it's a, uh, that's a, uh, and I, I remember, I, I'm so sorry that that, uh, that it happened, but it did. How many times have you moved in your life when you move, you know, from one place, one part of the country to the next? You, you, you used to live, live around Boston, didn't you, man? When you moved, did you just come down in a, with a suitcase, or did you actually have stuff to move? He didn't have much. But have you ever made a real move? Oh, man, that's a buster. I mean, I'll tell you, uh, I really hate, you know, the, to do that kind of stuff because I've had some some real bad experiences, and I lost something in a move once that I have never forgotten that uh, bugged me, and I've been bugged ever since about it. I'd love to, uh, you know, love to get it again, but it, uh, I, I don't expect to ever do it, that I had this uncle who uh, worked on the Rock Island Railroad. And he was, uh, he was a very remote uncle. Uh, some, so you know how in your family you'll have people that are closer. Uh, you see you all the time. Uh, they have some meaning to you. But this uncle was kind of like, uh, well, he was like a, s- a second uncle or something, some, some strange relationship. We'd see him about once every three or four years, and he was very remote from... Uh, my thinking, and older man, much older, you know, older than all the other people in the family. He's even older than my grandfather, but they called him uncle, and he was, and he was, he was a, a big, heavy-set guy with a black vest. He looked, I'll tell you how he looked, he looked a little like Edward Arnold. Ever seen Edward Arnold in the movies? Well, he looked like Edward Arnold, and he worked at the, at the main central, what they call the, the Chicago division of the Rock Island Road. Now, the Rock Island Road, you know what the Rock Island Road is. It's a famous railroad. And uh, have, do you know what the insignia of the Rock Island Road is? If you see it on a freight car going by? You know, really good railroaders can see freight cars going by in their sleep, and they can tell you what railroad it's, it is it is, and what division uh, and everything about it. Just from that insignia, you know, every every railroad has an insignia. What's What's the insignia, say, for example, of the Canadian Pacific? Imagine you're how about the uh which one or I'll ask you another one. Which one has the big mountain sheep standing on a mountain peak? Tremendous picture on the side of their trains. Which uh, what what is the uh, Pensy got? What is the Pennsylvania Railroad? What is the uh what is the uh, insignia of the B and O? You know these? 
What, what's the insignia? Now, now think about it, because you've probably seen a million freight cars in your life. Try to try to think about it. What's the uh, what's the uh, insignia? Say, for example, of the uh, Chesapeake in Ohio. Now you've seen it. You've seen it a thousand times. Probably more than that, actually. You don't know any of these, do you? Well, uh, I'll award the brass figdegee with bronze oak leaf palm if anyone can tell me what the insignia of the Rock Island is and was. And it's one of the most uh, romantic of all the insignia. It's a beautiful insignia. And the thing that used to get me about it all the time is that he, he, he'd worked for the railroad so long. You know, he had, in the railroad, they got all this tradition, you see. They don't, in many places, don't have tradition. Uh, there's nothing, when a guy works at a place 30 years, that's it, you know, he just, uh, he lives there and works there, and that's the end of it, and they may give him a watch, and in the back it says, uh, for 30 years service, you know, from the gang in the accounting office, that's about it. But railroads have tradition, and guys that work on these different lines are really kind of identified with these lines. And so, my, this uncle of mine, Uncle Tom, would show up, when he, when he would show up once in a while, he had this watch chain, big chain, was on the front of his vest, and on the watch chain was a magnificent gold replica of the Rock Island Road insignia that they had given him for something, and it was raised. It was in bas relief, and it was a beautiful thing. <laughs> it really was. It was, a, it was a lovely piece of sculpture, and and he would just have this thing hanging down there, and it was neat and beautiful. And all of us kids would look at that thing, so he'd show it to us all the time when he'd come. It's about all, never talk to us. He was, you know, there are some men that, that are really grown-up men. By grown-up men, they have no contact with kids at all. Kids are like another race. And uh, he does you know, you don't sit on his uh, knee. He doesn't dandle you on the knee. I think like a, he just comes in like a ship under full sail. And uh, Uncle Tom would come in and... He was facing a railroad man, saying he worked. He worked in the in the main uh, in the main office of the Chicago division. Well, one weekend, when uh, we were visiting him, one of the rare times we visited his house was in Chicago, and he had one of these apartments that was heated, steam heated. I always remember the, the fantastic heat in this apartment. You know, some types are like that, and he took me and my kid brother and two of my cousins down to his office to see his office. That's, that was his idea of a great afternoon for the kids, you know, because his life was his work, and he couldn't imagine anything more exciting than to go to his office. Well, it was. <laughs> we went out of this office, and, of course, he took us in, into this place, and that's when I saw these sounders, and they had these uh, little boxes all along the wall. It was a tremendous office right there in the big freight yards on the south side of Chicago, and you could see freight for miles out of these great big these big spotless windows they had. And you'd see the freights and you saw all those tracks and the gandy dances and the guys walking and working around out there. And all along the walls in these little wooden things were the sounders. Have you ever heard these sounders going? They just go... And there were two or three guys sitting next to these sounders with very cool-looking types and they have these green eye shields. And they're sitting down there and and they're listening. To, you know, they're just listening to this. And I didn't know what they were. You know, I knew nothing about this. To me, this uh, this was a whole new thing with guys sitting there listening to ticks. And taking away. And once in a while, one to turn to the other and say, hey, listen to Louis. 
And they're having conversations back and forth with this thing. My eyes are as big as things, you know, like saucers. Well, so old Uncle Tom takes us all around the place, in and out of the office, and you see these tickers and all that stuff going, and, and uh, there's guys walking around with big sheets of paper, and they had adding machines. And You know the smell of a real office is a smell. It's a smell of a thousand musty papers, million musty papers. It's the smell of... Uh, of uh, ancient typewriter ribbons moldering in the bottom of cabinets. It's the smell of elderly rubber bands turning to stone. The smell of rusting paper clips. And the guys themselves, they're all... It's a curious, static smell. And he found it very exciting. This was his whole life building this office. And on the wall, they had this tremendous clock, which I remember. A big railroad clock. You know, nothing's more official than railroad time. It was a great big white clock, big stark white face with those big hands. And it, it was one of these with a big glass panel under it and a swinging pendulum. And it's going... That kind of clock, you know, just ticking away. And every minute we go, dunk, the hand would move one little jump, dunk. Official railroad time. And old Uncle Tom, he takes out this fantastic watch he had. This, you know, you know what railroad watches look like, Matt? They had a big, a big Elgin, big, fantastic Elgin watch. And every one of those guys would walk into this office and they'd take out their watch and they'd look up at this big watch and they'd look and they'd stand there and look. And they, they, then they'd wind their watch a little bit. You know, the railroad man's watch is like, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's his life. I mean, it's based on his whole scene. So Uncle Tom took us all over the office. And you could smell this musty smell. W.O.R. New York. I like just about everything in Sunday Newsday, but I guess that L.I. magazine is my favorite section. Those pleasure maps in L.I. are fantastic. The pull-out TV book covers the whole week. Now we don't have to buy one. These Long Islanders are talking about something very close to my heart. I'm Clive Irving, editor of L.I., the full-color magazine that comes with Sunday Newsday. As an Englishman in America, I'd like to tell you about something that has appeal in both our countries, a real bargain. In any language, Sunday Newsday is a fantastic buy for only 25 cents. On Sunday, you get more of everything, news, features, columns, sports, community service. You get L.I. magazine and color comics. You also get the pull-out TV book with a full week's listings plus special guides to movies, sports shows, and children's programs. Sunday Newsday. We're very glad you like it. Well, it's uh, Zip Kit time here, and uh, <laughs> it's a curious name. Uh, what it boils down to is if you have any skin problems, uh, you know, whiteheads, blackheads, and so forth, acnes, and so on, well, here's a new thing. It's called the Zip Kit by Dermacon Laboratories. And it consists of three proven medicines, which uh, include this. The Dermacon Skin Cleanser, which does what it says it does. The Dermacon Medicated Lotion, which you use during the day to dry out blemishes and so on. And the Dermacon Medicated Cream, which you apply at night, which helps heal and soothe while you sleep. Now, the Zip Kit comes with all three of these things, and you can buy the Dermacon Zip Kit at Genovese, Whalen, Mac, Drug Guild, and other leading pharmacies. Now, the name is the Dermacon Zip Kit. In fact, they say give it a 30-day trial and it costs less than 25 cents a day to try, and you'll see the difference. 
The name again is, Zer- is Dermacon Zip Kit. Try it. You can pick it up at the drugstore. i got everybody out there going out of their minds trying to think of these uh, insignia. <laughs> well, now, the reason I knew these insignia, that's another story, too, uh, was that directly behind our house when I was a kid, about, uh, oh, I'd say a quarter of a mile behind our house, the main trunk line went through that went into the Chicago stockyards and all through the uh, the famous uh, Indiana Harbor, East Chicago hump, they call it, where a lot of the switching, all the freight cars were all, all uh, loaded and so on for the trips all across the country. You see, Chicago has been a railhead and is a railhead. And, and we lived right next to the main trunk that went east to, uh, to Chicago. Every, every train that came from the east, in other words, and from the south, passed within a quarter of a mile of my house. So one of the things we used to do on the way home from school, we'd go along the railroad tracks and we'd see these trains going by. And by the way, uh, as a byproduct of it, I would say that when I was in grade school and early high school, uh, that at least five of the kids I went to school with were killed by trains, at least. And to, to even carry it further than that, see, the train is such a reality in that town, to carry it further, at least three of my teachers, including my high school history teacher, was killed by trains, were killed by trains. And, uh, so, yeah, well, it's just the way it is. They go through there. They, they used to go clipping through there sometimes 75, 80 miles an hour, right? Through, I, I've seen many, uh, many uh, an accident of that kind. As a matter of fact, uh, one night coming home from uh, school, I had a car, and I was driving home. I think I've told the story. This, this is quite common, but... Uh, this was about uh, 7.30, 8 o'clock at night. And uh, every night, at a certain time, this big, fast, extremely fast train would go through. Uh, it was a, 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 a limited, you know, special train would go roaring through. Uh, one of the big, fast passenger trains. And it would go through about 70, between 75 and 90 miles an hour. Now, uh, that's, a, that's a lot of weight. That's a fantastic power. And I'm driving home from school one night, and this was late in the evening. I stayed there for football practice, as a matter of fact. It was about, oh, something like 7, 7.30, and it was twilight, just getting dusk. And I was driving on this concrete highway road, and on either side of me was nothing but fields, vacant lots and fields and so forth, and high-tension wires off to my left. I can see the scene because it was such a wild moment that it's, it's engraved in my memory. But I was driving along. Radio's going on in the car, and I'm just you know, just playing it cool. I'm kind of tired out from practice and all that. And ahead of me is a car about a quarter of a mile ahead of me. And that's all. There were no, no other cars on the road at that time, or at least that I could see. He's up ahead. I'm driving along. Well, we, we, we're just rolling along there about 45, 50 miles an hour. When I see coming way off on the horizon, I see this big highball special coming off to the left. And uh, he had his light on, and boy, he is really screaming. And a big diesel engine out in front there, and he's got that baby wound up and going full blast. It was a streamliner, you know, a big diesel engine. And I could see those the silver and orange cars all lined up there out in back of him. He must have had 15, 20, 30 cars all lit up because it was just about that time of the night. You could see the diners and everything. And uh, he's belting it through the prairies there, heading to Chicago. And you hear this, boop, he lays it out. Well, I'm driving along. I can see him coming. He's off there to my left. He's about, uh, when I first saw him, he must have been about a mile, mile and a quarter away with uh, everything going. And ahead of me is a flasher. 
on these red flashers. They didn't have gates there, just red flasher. But it was so visible, there was no way you could miss it. The, you could see the train and the flasher, and the thing is going ding, 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 and the red lights are going off and on. And I'm starting to slow down, and I see this car ahead of me. I couldn't believe what I was seeing at first. This car ahead of me is continuing to go without even slowing up. He just just continued to go. Well, now, I thought to myself, is this guy going to try to beat this thing or what? Well, I could see at a glance, you know, you can tell us. He, he just wasn't going to beat it. That the, either he was going to smack into the side of that thing or he was going to stop. He wasn't going to beat it. And I'm watching it. It's like a Greek tragedy or something. I'm driving along there and I'm slowing up by now, see. And this train is now not more than a quarter of a mile away. And boy, I can see that thing going. She is just roaring. You know that, that fantastic sound of a train? <laughs> He's just going. Well, it uh, it couldn't have been timed better. It was it was the kind of it was the kind of timing that you see when uh, when a ball player gets one right on the button and drives it right over the center field wall. He didn't pull it. He didn't slice it. It was a direct, full, right over the second baseman's shot. Now that's hitting it straight on. Well, this guy hit the the, the front of the train. And the car arrived at the intersection of the tracks and the road exactly at the same time. Exactly. And the guy was driving a four-door Ford, I remember. He said, right, and a rather new car. He was right up ahead of me. And it just hit, and it went so fast and so quickly, it didn't even make any noise. That's what was so amazing, because I was not more than, uh, oh, possibly a block behind this guy. It just went whap, just like that. Just went whap. He's gone. There I am. The car disappeared completely. Except for one thing. Just as he hit him, at the moment of impact, I saw something go up in the air, just high up. It must have gone... Oh, five stories in the air. Must have gone 50 feet in the air, just straight up. Just turning over and over and over. And it arched over and went on the other side of the train. I didn't see what it was at first. And it was gone. Nothing there. There was some glass down on the tracks. I stopped instantly and I jumped out. You know, I saw this guy get hit. And I saw glass down there. Nothing. It's unbelievable. Except one thing. I ran over into the weeds. I figured maybe he was in there. And there was his motor. The thing tossed the engine right out of his car, and it was hot, and oil was running out of it. And there it was. That's all there was. Well, I came back up on the road. My car's there, and I see a car coming towards me. The guy slows up. I'm waving him, you see. And the guy slows up, and this is what's the trouble, see? I said, a guy just got hit here. He said, what do you mean? Where is he? I said, well, he just got hit. I just saw him. He says, well, where is the guy? I said, that's all that's left, his engine. What are we, we going to do? Because, you know, I was a kid. I didn't know what the heck to do. Well, the two of us sort of milled around like that. I didn't know what to do. So uh, we both got into his car. They left my car. We drove on down, oh, maybe a mile or two, to a gas station down there. And uh, told this guy to gas station. Somebody just got hit back there. He saw that happens about every three or four days. He says, uh, where is, the, is he back there? I says, no. He just, he says, oh, well, then I know where he is. He says, wait a minute, I'll make a call. And he picked up the phone, and he called another filling station 
which was about two miles down, and by that time, the train had stopped at roughly a two-mile time before he could get that train stopped. And his car was just neatly tucked in under the front of that train, as flat and as neat and as clean as a sardine can. So, you know, when you, when you live uh, you know, around these things, you, you get kind of used to this thing. Well, we used to come down the tracks every night. And we used to, you know, you, you, when, you, when you're with a thing like that, you tend to get like, uh, you tend to play uh, with it a bit. And uh, we used to play uh, bullfight, for example. Guys would, guys would run out on the tracks, you know, along would come this fantastic train, you know, like the, like the B&O or, or the uh, El Capitan or one of those tremendous trains, you know, come roaring out of the darkness. And the kid would jump right off the track and, you're playing chicken, say, off he'd go. <laughs> well... I know two kids that didn't get off, that didn't make it, you know. In fact, I know one kid, it's not funny, I know one kid that did get off, but he was sucked right in. You know, that leaves a tremendous wake behind it, and he was just pulled right in. That was the end of the ball game. So uh, it's an exciting scene living around a red. And then once in a while, uh, once in a while, something really wild happens. Like one night, uh, uh, these train tracks uh, skirt Lake Michigan, and uh, they they go they go right through the steel mills. Now the steel mills are built on either side of the train tracks. If you ever ridden a train out in that area, uh, even taking an interurban train from Chicago, say out to Gary or a place like that, it goes right through the mills. Well, among other things, they go right over a couple of tremendous canals that are built into the lake. Now Lake Michigan is a deep lake, and uh, these canals are very deep canals. They're quite wide too. They're they're they're. Uh, I'd say, uh, oh, probably a quarter of a mile, maybe a half mile wide in some places. This is about a quarter of a mile wide. And the canals are used for bringing in the big ore boats that would come in with the coal and coke and ore, you see, from up around places like Duluth and so on, for the steel mills. Well, they had bridges over these things. And when a train was going through, like one of these big, fantastic trains going through, and this was one day I happened to be working the mill at this time. I was just a kid when it happened. It was this summer. And uh, it was uh, it happened uh, about eight, maybe seven thirty, quarter to eight in the morning. Actually, I'd been working all night, so it seemed like night to me. But it was early in the morning, and uh, this train used to go clipping through every morning about eight, and he would go right through the mills. I would say probably in the vicinity of eighty-five miles an hour, and of course it was a through track, and those uh, bridges were all down. Everything was cool. Well, something happened this morning, and for some reason or other. I remember when I hearing it. I, I can remember in the mill suddenly hearing this ungodly sound. Now, you hear sounds in the mill. It's part of the mill life, and the sounds you don't pay much attention to. Unless you hear one that is completely off the wall, that obviously is not part of the scheme or the scenario. This was a high-pitched shriek that must have gone on. It seemed like it went on for five minutes, but it probably didn't. But it just was a high-pitched one. Louder and louder and louder. It sounded like something growing. And then it suddenly stopped, and there was a dull thump, just a dull thump, just boom. And then you could hear from all sides, from every point of the compass, sirens wailing. And people crowded out of the mill. I ran out with a couple of other guys. And what a fantastic sight. What had happened was that this guy was highballing through, the engineer, and it was a passenger train, 
full bore. He must have been going 70, 75, 80 miles an hour. When, for some reason or other, by some terrible mistake, the bridge was out ahead of him. Now, that type of bridge is not the kind that raises up like this, but it's the kind that turns, meaning that, that before this guy was nothing but a sheer drop into the water. Well, that train... He, he threw that thing into reverse. He apparently put on the brakes. He did everything he could. And that train at 80 or 90 miles an hour slid something like a mile and a quarter. Just slid. And he just got it stopped except for one thing. The engine toppled into this water, which was tremendously deep for these big, deep draft boats that would come in. The engine just toppled over the cliff and just hung in like that. And the only fatality was the engineer. And the entire train was saved, everybody. And they were all having breakfast, of course, they were all thrown around, but nobody was hurt in the train. And uh, he was in the cab. And uh, I remember the sight when they were pulling that engine out. And the the uh, engineer was in the cab, and they, they dove in and pulled him out. I was all you know, involved in all this thing. At that point, you begin to have a real awareness of railroads. I mean, when you see enough of these things. And so we used to walk along the tracks at night, coming home from school, and we'd, we'd memorize these, these insignia. And we used to, you used to have games, you know, who, who would, who would uh, not identify an insignia first? It's like, you know how kids used to do that with cars, identifying cars? What, what, what's this car and what's that car? Well, we used to identify railroad insignia. And so when a freight train would go by, there'd be like 50 different types of cars on it, not just uh, one car, maybe a B&O train. But they would have all kinds. Do you know the, uh, for example, do you know the L&N insignia? You ever hear of the Great Northern? You heard it? That's right. Now you're coming. Now you're beginning. Yeah, now you're seeing it. That's right. Now you're hitting it. Uh, The Southern Pacific. You know what that one is. Oh, there's a lot of great things. These are beautiful things. And, and, uh... And we just, we, we got so that we, I got to identify maybe 75, 80 of them. Uh, yeah, well, you know, just like kids identify baseball cards or something. So we could identify all of them. Well, anyway, this, this particular day that I remember, it was a, it bugs me because of this move that I took. You didn't think I was going to get back to that, did you? Well, this is the essence of the story. <laughs> I, I, uh, one, I was so fascinated, see, by this whole office that my Uncle Tom worked in, and I was a little bit older than all the other cousins, and so I was old enough that he could tell me things about this. The other kids were little, and so on that day, he took us out on the train. He had a pass, and, and we, we rode on the, the Rock Island. We, we took, the, all of us got on the train, and, you know, of course, he's a big shot. He knew everybody. He wasn't really a big shot, but he was well-known. All these railroad guys knew each other, so old Tom takes us on the train, and the porters and the the uh, conductors were coming back and saying hello to us, and they took us up to the front of the train, and we went up to Milwaukee, I remember that day. It was fantastic, looking out of the window, riding on the train, and then we got off and came back. Well, that was the great Sunday afternoon. It's amazing how you can remember one Sunday out of your childhood. So the old guy knew what he was doing. So <laughs> anyway, we came back, and I was fascinated by these sounders. These guys sitting there talking. With us, and I guess that's the beginning of my my original interest in amateur radio. Just the idea of these guys being able to hear these clicks, and they knew what they were saying. They were talking. And uh, they were getting messages from all over the country. And they talked back and forth. I was fascinated by that. 
You know, kids were always in, uh, hung on, on, on being able to talk to each other at a distance. So this is uh, one of the reasons why the tremendous uh, involvement in the telephone, uh, you know, the, the whole idea of having your own walkie-talkie. You know, this, uh, this uh, it's like being invisible, being able to go any place. And so I was really intrigued by this clacker. And so Uncle Tommy listened to that, and we were talking about it, and he was telling me how it worked, and he showed me this guy who was doing it. Well, my birthday was about uh, six or seven weeks after that. And sure enough, uh, it was on a Sunday, and, and my Uncle Tom came over and a couple of other people that were going to have a birthday thing, see? So he came over and he had a present for me. And everybody else gave me stuff like fielder's mitts and all that stuff. And I opened up the present, and what, what do you think it was? <laughs> Talk about a stroke of genius. It was an old, worn-out telegraph key that he had gotten from one of the, you know, from the railroad there. They probably had storehouses full of them. But it was an old, worn-out telegraph key, and it was a sounder in one of these little boxes. But the telegraph key is there, see? And he, 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 he says now, uh, and I, oh, I was gassed, you know. Holy smokes, what a, what a stroke of genius. You know, he gave me this telegraph key. So uh, he says, now, I'm going to show you uh, what you do with it. So he had another bag, and he takes out of the bag, he takes out these dry cells, you know, these big, round, dry cell-type batteries, and he connects the dry cells, and he takes these two wires, and he connected it to the sounder and the key, and he says, now press the key. So I press the key, and he goes, tick, 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 tick. He says, now, see, you can send messages. So I'm working with, and by the way, it just drove my mother out of her bird. That thing just, I'd, I'd run that night and day, you know, it's going tick, 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 tick. And with it, he gave me a copy of the Morse code. Now, there's two kinds of Morse codes. Did you know that? There's the International Morse and the Continental Morse. And the Continental Morse is the one used for telegraph. The International Morse is the radio Morse code. Now, they're different because, you know, when you have a sounder that ticks, you can't send a dash. In other words, radio goes da 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 Well, a, a, uh, a continental sounder just goes tick, 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 tick. And it's the spacing between the ticks that's important. Well, the first code I ever learned was the continental code. It was a very rare code. And uh, I only learned it because I was a kid. You know, and they had this thing. And I'm sending these messages. Say, So that fantastic gift. Well, I had that thing. And it was an old, old thing. I had it for a long time. I, I used to have it in my bed, you know, up in the bedroom. I have it up on a bookshelf and all that when I was a kid. Well, one time when we moved, that disappeared. We, we, we arrived at the new house, and they had all the barrels full of books and the old tennisers. The worst stuff arrives intact. Nothing, you know, it arrives intact, like, like an old beach ball that has been wrecked and, and is useless. That will arrive absolutely, and they'll even wrap it in tissue paper, you know, in a, in a, in a box that, so that it doesn't get shocked. I want to tell you, uh, the good stuff, forget it, friend. So uh, this sounder, and I didn't discover it at first, see. I, I, at first, you know, when you move into a new house, all the barrels and the boxes and all that jazz are all piled up. We didn't move that much, but we did move. And uh, everything in, is all in an uproar, and we had new rooms and all that stuff. And so it, it must have been six months before our house actually shook down and everything was unpacked. My mother finally got up the bookshelves and all that jazz. Well, one night, I'm, I'm uh, in my bedroom, and all of a sudden it hit me. Where's my sounder? I said, oh, it must be in the basement. 
But it still had some stuff down there, you know, old papers and junk. No, forget it. My key and my sounder, which was put in a box, had disappeared. And I've never forgotten it. That has rankled. <laughs> now, it's, it's not worth anything. You know, the old, old telegraph keys, in case you're curious, are not worth anything. Because there were trillions of them made. And, and, uh, but it was just the fact that it was there. It was my, my telegraph key. You know, it was an old, what they call an old sidewinder-type telegraph key. And uh, it was the, the railroad type with a sounder. And I've always been bugged because of that. Once in a while, when I see these great moving com commercials come on TV, you know, these guys, boy, they'll move everything. See, I say, oh, yeah. You know the one that shows the girl, the little kid, and they bring the doll out and all that stuff? I think of that sound. I, oh, yeah, I want to kill him. You know? <laughs> well, I, I've always, since that time, had, had, had a, uh, a sneaking desire to have another one of those. If anybody has an old telegraph key that's down in the basement in the old tennis shoes, send it along and I'll give it a good home. And and I mean it because it's 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 been and it's 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 discouraging, you know, that a guy that a guy should have uh, now, like you know, when you're a kid, you always figure when you're grown up, you're going to get any anything you want. You know, there's not going to be any problem. You know, you get credit cards and all. Eh, there's a lot of stuff you don't get when you're grown up. You agree with that, man? that you would have wanted as a kid, you just don't do it. And you secretly, like, uh, like for example, for a long time, I always wanted to have a really good, a really good Red Ryder BB gun. Well, I got one. <laughs> I really did get one. And it's curious how that fills a void. Now, I have never had a desire to have a flexible flyer sled. I'm going to be, I'm going to be uh, very subversive because he, I never did. Did you? Or you had one. Huh? <laughs> well, I never... No, I never had a desire to have a flexible flyer sled. And and uh, I never was a sled type. Everybody used to go, no. What's the matter? Oh, yeah, well, there was not much to do out there with sleds. No, that's right. You just pull it around. It was too flat, yeah. So flexible flyers, it's, you know, it's like a guy living in Olathe, Kansas. He doesn't have a, he doesn't have a terrible desire to own a sunfish sailboat. You know, he just doesn't. doesn't turn him on. Uh, a guy living in the middle of, uh, say, the plains of Oklahoma, he doesn't have a terrible desire to own a set of head skis or anything like that. So uh, I never had a sled thing, and so I've known guys that did. And it never it never turned me out, so don't don't tell me where I can get a mint-conditioned flexible fly. That doesn't do anything. Get it yourself, friend. You know what you can do with it. Uh, but uh, there are other things, though, that, that I would... I'll tell you one of the things I always wanted as a kid. I'll tell you. It's going to sound ridiculous to you. Don't get mad. Don't don't get bugged when I tell you. I'm just, I'm just going to come out. I'm just I'm being truthful. You don't mind, do you? I always wanted a stuffed owl. <laughs> well, now I'm going to tell you why. There's a reason for everything, Matt. Don't get mad. Everybody has a reason. I'm not going to come around and get mad because you want a green bowling ball or something like that. That's your thing. Uh, I, I, the reason was there was a kid named Stanley Roper in our neighborhood. And uh, Stanley Roper was a little bit older than the rest of us. And he was kind of the, the Jack Armstrong of the neighborhood. Uh, you know, he played on a basketball team and all that. Had a, had a sweater with a big letter and all that stuff. See, So Stanley Roper was kind of a, he was kind of a pace setter. You know, he, he was it. What Stanley Roper did, that's what the little squirts would try to do later on. Never quite pull off, but that's what they wanted to do. So one time, 
there were three or four of us, and, and uh, Stanley Roper deigned to have us come in, and uh, something we're doing, he came up to his house, and, and uh, I was in Stanley Roper's room. Well, Stanley Roper and a whole bunch of us were in his room doing something. I don't recall what it was, what we were doing, but I did, one thing that got me, on top of Stanley Roper's bureau, you know, where he kept all his great stuff, like uh, his letters and his fantastic pair of Chicago uh, ice skates, uh, racing model, he had... Uh, uh, three or four great fielders mitts. He was a he was a center fielder on a high school baseball team. You know, remember I was in eighth grade or something at the time. On top of this bureau drawer, that right on top was this magnificent stuffed owl, and he was had his wings out, wings out, looking real mad, and he had a hole of a branch. I look at it. Wow, <laughs> stuffed owl. All I had was stuff. Well, I, I tell you what I did have on the top of mine in case it's sickening. I, you know, you, you have to constantly apologize for your own uh, bad stuff and the poorness that you've got. Uh, I had a three-and-a-half-inch high plastic model of Wimpy. It was one of my favorite things. Do you remember Wimpy? All right. All right, I'll ask you a question about Wimpy. What is it that Wimpy wanted to eat all the time? Right, and what day was he going to pay for the hamburger that he got today? No. There was one day. He never said tomorrow. Ah, uh, you're getting close. You got six more choices. <laughs> At least you're in the week, anyway. <laughs> well, <laughs> well uh, all right, I'll ask you another question about I was a Wimpy fan. I'll ask you another question, because I love hamburgers. I'll ask you another question. Uh, who was the guy that Wimpy was always trying to buy the hamburgers from? The same guy all the time. Who was he? You don't know, huh? <laughs> well, now that's when your mind is filled with that kind of trivia, you find it hard to keep up with J.K. Galbraith. You know, I don't think he ever heard of Wimpy. But uh, <laughs> that's right. But on, on top of my bureau drawer, when I was a kid, I had this little three and a half inch or five inch high plastic model of Wimpy, and he had a derby hat on. You remember he wore his derby, and he had in his hand the plastic hamburger. And he was looking kind of silly, you know. He looked like a little bit. He looked a, lot, a little bit like W. C. Fields, as a matter of fact. Possibly he was even based on W. C. But I have never forgotten that that uh, that key. That has rankled. And, and have you ever wondered why Shepard is ill-tempered at times, irascible, makes bad remarks? There's a lot of little things down in my soul like that. Oh, yeah. Oh, 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 what are the worst things? Oh, yeah, the time my bicycle was stolen. Never got it back. Oh, I'm, I'm still bugged by that. Absolutely. It's parked outside of the A&P. I was getting a loaf of bread and stuff for, you know... I was sent to the store, so I took my bike like a fool. Came out, gone. Forget it, Phil. That's the kind of stuff you never forget. And it, it believe me, it corrodes your soul. Ultimately, you have no faith in your fellow man. Oh, no. And it was a brand new bike. What model? It was an Elgin. It was an Elgin Trailblazer. You want to get really technical about it? 26-inch wheel? The whole thing. My telegraph key's gone. My bicycle is gone. All right, I'll tell you about the chick that I once knew when I was a sophomore. Do you want to hear what happened to her? I was... I thought I was making time. Right out from under my nose, this guy took her. Remember where you go. 
Your fellow man is not to be trusted. And by the way, I hope you understand that I am your fellow man. So I would suggest you don't trust me. That's just a word to the, uh, what is it? It's a word to the, uh, something is sufficient. It's right on the tip of my tongue. Uh, oh, you're getting closer, Mac. Now you only got three days left to choose from. There you are. WOR New York, next, Lester Smith and the News. News in detail on the hour from the WOR Newsroom, South Dakota Senator George McGovern just about has Rhode Island's 22 presidential convention nomination votes right in his column. Tonight, over the mining of North Vietnamese harbors, Humphrey said it would be foolish for an American president to blockade North Vietnam from its Soviet supplies without some understanding that would avert an international crisis. Tonight, a federal judge in Brooklyn extended from New York all the way to the Soviet Union the travel limits of a Russian accused of trying to steal plans for the United States Navy supersonic fighter plane. A hasty two-minute court hearing held after the normal court hours was conducted by Justice Mark Constantino for Valerie Markulov. Markulov is free on $100,000 bail. Markulov was a United Nations translator when he was arrested last February on the espionage charges. President Nixon visited Wood.